Chapter sixty nine, part three of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume six by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty nine. Part three. It was thus, about the middle of the thirteenth century, that the Romans called from Bologna the senator Brancialeone, whose fame and merit have been rescued from oblivion by the pen of an English historian. A just anxiety for his reputation, a clear foresight of the difficulties of the task, had engaged him to refuse the honor of their choice. The statutes of Rome were suspended and his office prolonged to the term of three years. By the guilty and licentious he was accused as cruel, by the clergy he was suspected as partial, but the friends of peace and order applauded the firm and upright magistrate by whom those blessings were restored. No criminals were so powerful as to brave, so obscure as to elude the justice of the senator. By his sentence two nobles of the Anibaldi family were executed on a gibbet, and he inexorably demolished, in the city and neighborhood, one hundred and forty towers, the strong shelters of rapine and mischief. The bishop, as a simple bishop, was compelled to reside in his diocese, and the standard of Brancialeone was displayed in the field with terror and effect. His services were repaid by the ingratitude of the people and worthy of the happiness which they enjoyed. By the public robbers, whom he had provoked for their sake, the Romans were excited to depose and imprison their benefactor. Nor would his life have been spared if Bologna had not possessed a pledge for his safety. Before his departure the prudent senator had required the exchange of thirty hostages of the noblest families of Rome. On the news of his danger, and at the prayer of his wife, they were more strictly guarded, and Bologna, in the cause of honor, sustained the thunders of a papal interdict. This generous resistance allowed the Romans to compare the present with the past, and Brancialeone was conducted from the prison to the capital, amidst the acclamations of a repentant people. The reminder of his government was firm and fortunate, and as soon as envy was appeased by death, his head, enclosed in a precious vase, was deposited on a lofty column of marble. The impotence of reason and virtue recommended in Italy a more effectual choice, instead of a private citizen, to whom they yielded a voluntary and precarious obedience, the Romans elected for their senator some prince of independent power, who could defend them from their enemies and themselves. Charles of Anjou and Provence, the most ambitious and warlike monarch of the age, accepted at the same time the kingdom of Naples from the Pope, and the office of senator from the Roman people. As he passed through the city, in his road to victory, he received their oath of allegiance, lodged in the Lateran palace, and smoothed in a short visit the harsh features of his despotic character. Yet even Charles was exposed to the inconstancy of the people, who saluted with the same acclamations the passage of his rival, the unfortunate Conradin, and a powerful avenger who reigned in the capital, alarmed the fears and jealousy of the popes. 
the absolute term of his life was superseded by a renewal every third year, and the enmity of Nicholas III obliged the Sicilian king to abdicate the government of Rome. In his bull, A Perpetual Law, the imperious pontiff asserts the truth, validity, and use of the donation of Constantine, not less essential to the peace of the city than to the independence of the church, establishes the annual election of the senator, and formally disqualifies all emperors, kings, princes, and persons of an eminent and conspicuous rank. This prohibitory clause was repealed in his own behalf by Martin the Fourth who humbly solicited the suffrage of the Romans. In the presence, and by the authority of the people, two electors conferred, not on the Pope, but on the noble and faithful Martin, the dignity of senator, and the supreme administration of the Republic, to hold during his natural life, and to exercise at pleasure by himself or his deputies. About fifty years afterwards, the same title was granted to the Emperor Levis of Bavaria, and the liberty of Rome was acknowledged by her two sovereigns, who accepted a municipal office in the government of their own metropolis. In the first moments of rebellion, when Arnold of Brescia had inflamed their minds against the church, the Romans artfully labored to conciliate the favor of the empire, and to recommend their merit and services in the cause of Caesar. The style of their ambassadors to Conrad III and Frederick I is a mixture of flattery and pride, the tradition and the ignorance of their own history. After some complaint of his silence and neglect, they exhort the former of these princes to pass the Alps, and assume from their hands the imperial crown. We beseech your majesty not to disdain the humility of your sons and vassals, not to listen to the accusations of our common enemies, who calumniate the senate as hostile to your throne, who sow the seeds of discord, that they may reap the harvest of destruction. The Pope and the Sicilian are united in an impious league to oppose our liberty and your coronation. With the blessing of God, our zeal and courage has hitherto defeated their attempts. Of their powerful and factious adherents, more especially the Frangipani, we have taken by assault the houses and turrets. Some of these are occupied by our troops, and some are levelled with the ground. The Milvian bridge, which they had broken, is restored and fortified for your safe passage, and your army may enter the city without being annoyed from the castle of St. Angelo. All that we have done, and all that we design, is for your honour and service, in the loyal hope that you will speedily appear in person to vindicate these rights which have been invaded by the clergy, to revive the dignity of the empire, and to surpass the fame and glory of your predecessors. May you fix your residence in Rome, the capital of the world, give laws to Italy and the Teutonic kingdom, and imitate the example of Constantine and Justinian, who by the vigor of the senate and people obtained the scepter of the earth. But these splendid and fallacious wishes were not cherished by Conrad the Franconian, whose eyes were fixed on the Holy Land, and who died without visiting Rome soon after his return from the Holy Land. His nephew and successor, Frederick Barbarossa, was more ambitious of the imperial crown, nor had any of the successors of Otho acquired such absolute sway over the kingdom of Italy. Surrounded by his ecclesiastical and secular princes, he gave audience in his camp at Sutri 
to the ambassadors of Rome, who thus addressed him in a free and florid oration. Incline your ear to the queen of cities. Approach with a peaceful and friendly mind the precincts of Rome, which has cast away the yoke of the clergy, and is impatient to crown her legitimate emperor. Under your auspicious influence may the primitive times be restored. Assert the prerogatives of the eternal city, and reduce under her monarchy the insolence of the world. You are not ignorant that, in a former age, by the wisdom of the senate, by the valor and discipline of the equestrian order, she extended her victorious arms to the east and west, beyond the Alps, and over the islands of the ocean. By our sins, in the absence of our princes, the noble institution of the senate has sunk in oblivion, and with our prudence our strength has likewise decreased. We have revived the senate and the equestrian order, the counsels of the one, the arms of the other, will be devoted to your person and the service of the empire. Do you not hear the language of the Roman matron? You were guest. I have adopted you as a citizen, a transalpine stranger. I have elected you for my sovereign, and given you myself and all that is mine. Your first and most sacred duty is to sphere and subscribe, that you will shed your blood for the republic, that you will maintain in peace and justice the laws of the city, and the charters of your predecessors, and that you will reward with five thousand pounds of silver the faithful senators who shall proclaim your titles in the capital. With the name, assume the character of Augustus. The flowers of Latin rhetoric were not yet exhausted, but Frederick, impatient of their vanity, interrupted the orators in the high tone of royalty and conquest. Famous indeed have been the fortitude and wisdom of the ancient Romans. But your speech is not seasoned with wisdom, and I could wish that fortitude were conspicuous in your actions. Like all sublunary things, Rome has felt the vicissitudes of time and fortune. Your noblest families were translated to the east, to the royal city of Constantine, and the remains of your strength and freedom have long since been exhausted by the Greeks and Franks. Are you desirous of beholding the ancient glory of Rome, the gravity of the senate, the spirit of the knights, the discipline of the camp, the valor of the legions? You will find them in the German Republic. It is not empire naked and alone. The ornaments and virtues of empire have likewise migrated beyond the Alps to a more deserving people. They will be employed in your defense, but they claim your obedience." You pretend that myself or my predecessors have been invited by the Romans. You mistake the word. They were not invited, they were implored. From its foreign and domestic tyrants, the city was rescued by Charlemagne and Otho, whose ashes repose in our country, and their dominion was the price of your deliverance. Under that dominion your ancestors lived and died. I claim by the right of inheritance and possession— and who shall dare to extort you from my hands? Is the hand of the Franks and Germans enfeebled by age? Am I vanquished? Am I a captive? Am I not encompassed with the banners of a potent and invincible army? You impose conditions on your master. You require oaths. If the conditions are just, an oath is superfluous. If unjust, it is criminal. Can you doubt my equity? It is extended to the meanest of my subjects. Will not my sword be unsheathed in the defense of the capital? 
by that sword the northern kingdom of Denmark has been restored to the Roman Empire. You prescribe the measure and the objects of my bounty, which flows in a copious but a voluntary stream. All will be given to patient merit, all will be denied to rude importunity. Neither the emperor nor the senate could maintain these lofty pretensions of dominion and liberty. United with the pope, and suspicious of the Romans, Frederick continued his march to the Vatican. His coronation was disturbed by a sally from the capital, and if the numbers and valor of the Germans prevailed in the bloody conflict, he could not safely encamp in the presence of a city of which he styled himself the sovereign. About twelve years afterwards he besieged Rome, to seat an antipope in the chair of St. Peter, and twelve pisan galleys were introduced into the Tiber. But the senate and people were saved by the arts of negotiation, and the progress of disease. Nor did Frederick or his successors reiterate the hostile attempt. Their laborious reigns were exercised by the popes, the crusades, and the independence of Lombardy and Germany. They courted the alliance of the Romans, and Frederick II offered in the capital the great standard, the Caraccio of Milan. After the extinction of the House of Swabia, they were banished beyond the Alps, and their last coronations betrayed the impotence and poverty of the Teutonic Caesars. Under the reign of Adrian, when the empire extended from the Euphrates to the ocean, from Mount Atlas to the Grampian Hills, a fanciful historian amused the Romans with the picture of their ancient wars. There was a time, says Florus, when Tibur and Praeneste, our summer retreats, were the objects of hostile woes in the capital, when we dreaded the shades of the Arician groves, when we could triumph without a blush over the nameless villages of the Sabines and Latins, and even Corioli could afford a title not unworthy of a victorious general. The pride of his contemporaries was gratified by the contrast of the past and the present. They would have been humbled by the prospect of futurity, by the prediction that after a thousand years, Rome, despoiled of empire and contracted to her primeval limits, would renew the same hostilities, on the same ground which was then decorated with her villas and gardens. The adjacent territory on either side of the Tiber was always claimed, and sometimes possessed, as the patrimony of St. Peter, but the barons assumed a lawless independence, and the cities too faithfully copied the revolt and discord of the metropolis. In the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, the Romans incessantly labored to reduce or destroy the contumacious vassals of the church and senate, and if their headstrong and selfish ambition was moderated by the pope, he often encouraged their zeal by the alliance of his spiritual arms. Their warfare was that of the first consuls and dictators, who were taken from the plough. They assembled in arms at the foot of the capital, sallied from the gates, plundered or burned the harvests of their neighbors, engaged in tumultuary conflict, and returned home after an expedition of fifteen or twenty days. Their sieges were tedious and unskillful. In the use of victory, they indulged the meaner passions of jealousy and revenge, and instead of adopting the valor, they trampled on the misfortunes of their adversaries. The captives, in their shirts, with a rope around their necks, solicited their pardon. The fortifications, and even the buildings of the rival cities, were demolished, 
and the inhabitants were scattered in the adjacent villages. It was thus that the seats of the cardinal bishops, Porto, Ostia, Albanum, Tusculum, Praeneste, and Tibur or Tivoli, were successively overthrown by the ferocious hostility of the Romans. Of these, Porto and Ostia, the two keys of the Tiber, are still vacant and desolate. The marshy and unwholesome banks are peopled with herds of buffaloes, and the river is lost to every purpose of navigation and trade. The hills, which afford a shady retirement from the autumnal heats, have again smiled with the blessings of peace. Frescati has arisen near the ruins of Tusculum, Tibur or Tivoli has resumed the honors of a city, and the meaner towns of Albano and Palestrina are decorated with the villas of the cardinals and princes of Rome. In the work of destruction, the ambition of the Romans was often checked and repulsed by the neighboring cities and their allies. In the first siege of Tibur, they were driven from their camp, and the battles of Tusculum and Viterbo might be compared in their relative state to the memorable fields of Trasimene and Cannae. In the first of these pity wars, thirty thousand Romans were overthrown by a thousand German horse, whom Frederick Barbarossa had detached to the relief of Tusculum, and if we number the slain at three, the prisoners at two thousand, we shall embrace the most authentic and moderate account. Sixty-eight years afterwards they marched against Viterbo in the ecclesiastical state, with the whole force of the city. By a rare coalition the Teutonic eagle was blended, in the adverse banners, with the keys of St. Peter, and the Pope's auxiliaries were commanded by a count of Toulouse and a bishop of Winchester. The Romans were discomfited with shame and slaughter, but the English prelate must have indulged the vanity of a pilgrim, if he multiplied their numbers to one hundred, and their loss in the field to thirty thousand men. Had the policy of the Senate and the discipline of the legions been restored with the capital, the divided condition of Italy would have offered the fairest opportunity of a second conquest. But in arms the modern Romans were not above, and in arts they were far below the common level of the neighboring republics. Nor was their warlike spirit of any long continuance. After some irregular sallies, they subsided in the national apathy, in the neglect of military institutions, and in the disgraceful and dangerous use of foreign mercenaries. Ambition is a weed of quick and early vegetation in the vineyard of Christ. Under the first Christian princes, the chair of St. Peter was disputed by the votes, the venality, the violence, of a popular election. The sanctuaries of Rome were polluted with blood, and, from the third to the twelfth century, the church was distracted by the mischief of frequent schisms. As long as the final appeal was determined by the civil magistrate, these mischiefs were transient and local. The merits were tried by equity or favor, nor could the unsuccessful competitor long disturb the triumph of his rival. But after the emperors had been divested of their prerogatives, after a maxim had been established that the vicar of Christ is amenable, to no earthly tribunal, each vacancy of the holy seat might involve Christendom in controversy and war. The claims of the cardinals and inferior clergy, of the nobles and people, were vague and litigious. The freedom of choice was overruled by the tumults of a city, 
that no longer owned or obeyed a superior. On the decease of a pope, two factions proceeded in different churches to a double election. The number and weight of votes, the priority of time, the merit of the candidates, might balance each other, the most respectable of the clergy were divided, and the distant princes who bowed before the spiritual throne could not distinguish the spurious from the legitimate idol. The emperors were often the authors of the schism, from the political motive of opposing a friendly to a hostile pontiff, and each of the competitors was reduced to suffer the insults of his enemies, who were not aved by conscience, and to purchase the support of his adherents, who were instigated by avarice or ambition, a peaceful and perpetual succession was ascertained by Alexander the Third, who finally abolished the tumultuary votes of the clergy and people, and defined the right of election in the sole college of cardinals. The three orders of bishops, priests, and deacons were assimilated to each other by this important privilege. The parochial clergy of Rome obtained the first rank in the hierarchy. They were indifferently chosen among the nations of Christendom, and the possession of the richest benefices of the most important bishoprics was not incompatible with their title and office. The senators of the Catholic Church, the coadjutors and legates of the supreme pontiff, were robed in purple, the symbol of martyrdom or royalty. They claimed a proud equality with kings, and their dignity was enhanced by the smallest of their number, which, till the reign of Leo X, seldom exceeded twenty or twenty-five persons. By this wise regulation all doubt and scandal were removed, and the root of schism was so effectually destroyed that in the period of six hundred years a double choice has only once divided the unity of the sacred college. But as the concurrence of two-thirds of the votes had been made necessary, the election was often delayed by the private interest and passions of the cardinals, and while they prolonged their independent reign, the Christian world was left destitute of a head. A vacancy of almost three years had preceded the elevation of George the Tenth, who resolved to prevent the future abuse, and his bull, after some opposition, has been consecrated in the code of the canon law. Nine days are allowed for the obsequies of the deceased pope, and the arrival of the absent cardinals. On the tenth, they are imprisoned, each with one domestic, in a common apartment or conclave, without any separation of walls or curtains. A small window is reserved for the introduction of necessaries, but the door is locked on both sides and guarded by the magistrates of the city to seclude them from all correspondence with the world. If the election be not consummated in three days, the luxury of their table is contracted to a single dish at dinner and supper, and after the eighth day they are reduced to a scanty allowance of bread, water, and wine. During the vacancy of the holy seat, the cardinals are prohibited from touching the revenues, or assuming, unless in some rare emergency, gets the government of the church, all agreements and promises among the electors are formally annulled, and their integrity is fortified by their solemn oath and the prayers of the Catholics. Some articles of inconvenient or superfluous rigor have been gradually relaxed, but the principle of confinement is vigorous and entire. They are still urged, by the personal motives of health and freedom, to accelerate the moment of their deliverance, 
and the improvement of ballot or secret votes has wrapped the struggles of the conclave in the silky veil of charity and politeness. By these institutions the Romans were excluded from the election of their prince and bishop, and in the fever of wild and precarious liberty they seemed insensible of the loss of this inestimable privilege. The Emperor Louis of Bavaria revived the example of his great Otho. After some negotiation with the magistrates, the Roman people were assembled in the square before St. Peter's. The Pope of Avignon, John the Twenty-Second, was deposed. The choice of his successor was ratified by their consent and applause. They freely voted for a new law, that their bishop should never be absent more than three months in the year, and two days' journey from the city, and that if he neglected to return on the third summons, the public servant should be degraded and dismissed. But Louis forgot his own debility and the prejudices of the time. Beyond the precincts of a German camp, his useless phantom was rejected. The Romans despised their own workmanship. The antipope implored the mercy of his lawful sovereign, and the exclusive right of the cardinals was more firmly established by this unseasonable attack. Had the election been always held in the Vatican, the rights of the Senate and people would not have been violated with impunity. But the Romans forgot, and were forgotten, in the absence of the successors of Gregory the Seventh, who did not keep as a divine precept their ordinary residence in the city and diocese. The care of the diocese was less important than the government of the universal church, nor could the popes delight in a city in which their authority was always opposed, and their person was often endangered. From the persecution of the emperors and the wars of Italy, they escaped beyond the Alps into the hospitable bosom of France. From the tumults of Rome they prudently withdrew to live and die in the more tranquil stations of Anagni, Perugia, Viterbo, and the adjacent cities. When the flock was offended or impoverished by the absence of the shepherd, they were recalled by a stern admonition that St. Peter had fixed his chair, not in an obscure village, but in the capital of the world, by a ferocious menace that the Romans would march in arms to destroy the place and people that should dare to afford them a retreat. They returned with timorous obedience, and were saluted with the account of a heavy debt, of all the losses which their desertion had occasioned, the hire of lodgings, the sale of provisions, and the various expenses of servants and strangers who attended the court. After a short interval of peace, and perhaps of authority, they were again banished by new tumults, and again summoned by the imperious or respectful invitation of the Senate. In these occasional retreats, the exiles and fugitives of the Vatican were seldom long or far distant from the metropolis, but in the beginning of the fourteenth century the apostolic throne was transported, as it might seem for ever, from the Tiber to the Rhone, and the cause of the transmigration may be deduced from the furious contest between Boniface the Eighth and the King of France. The spiritual arms of excommunication and interdict were repulsed by the union of the three estates, and the privileges of the Gallican Church. But the Pope was not prepared against the carnal weapons which Philip the Fair had courage to employ. As the Pope resided at Anagni, without the suspicion of danger, his palace and person were assaulted by three hundred horse, who had been secretly levied by William of Nogaret 
a French minister, and Scarra Colonna, of a noble but hostile family of Rome. The cardinals fled. The inhabitants of Anagni were seduced from their allegiance and gratitude. But the dauntless Boniface, unarmed and alone, seated himself in his chair and awaited, like the conscript fathers of old, the swords of the Gauls. Nogaret, a foreign adversary, was content to execute the orders of his master. By the domestic enmity of Colonna, he was insulted with words and blows, and during a confinement of three days his life was threatened by the hardships which they inflicted on the obstinacy which they provoked. Their strange delay gave time and courage to the adherents of the church, who rescued him from sacrilegious violence. But his imperious soul was wounded in the vital part, and Boniface expired at Rome in a frenzy of rage and revenge. His memory is stained with the glaring vices of avarice and pride, nor has the courage of a martyr promoted this ecclesiastical champion to the honors of a saint. A magnanimous sinner, say the chronicles of the times, who entered like a fox, reigned like a lion, and died like a dog. He was succeeded by Benedict the Eleventh, the mildest of mankind. Yet he excommunicated the impious emissaries of Philip, and devoted the city and people of Arnagni by a tremendous course, whose effects are still visible to the eyes of superstition. End of chapter 69, part 3